I know what you're thinking. I've done a Roy in classic Roy fashion. I've made an episode about how I'm going to judge things up, not going to miss a day, going to really go for it, and then I don't make an episode the next day. But what I also said, also, hello, listen, Saturday Night Out podcast, Roy here, episode 300 and blah blah it's the 10th of March, but I called this episode the 9th of March-ish, because the reason I didn't put an episode out yesterday is that my plans were very welcomingly interrupted, as you can probably guess from the title of this episode. I got to see the documentary movie, Meet Me in the Bathroom courtesy of enemy screens and the dice app so i was planning to record an episode yesterday evening but just as i was about to kind of do it or yesterday afternoon rather i got a text from the dice app a few days ago i noticed that there was a screening of the meet me in the bathroom documentary happening yesterday thursday 9th of march but it was already, it was free but their tickets so, so to speak were sold out but you could still join the waiting list so I joined the waiting list. I thought, why not? Let's see. I doubt I'll get to see the thing, but at least I'm on the waiting list just in case. As luck would have it, the doors open at six, maybe three. I think like three o'clock I got a text saying, hey, you were on the waiting list, but now you have a chance to actually get a ticket if you're still interested. And I thought, OK, let, this is a sign. Let's go for it. Which I thought maybe I'd record an episode when I got back, but it was a bit late and I was a bit tired. And I wanted to do it a bit more justice. I didn't want it to be a rushed five-minute thing just before I fall asleep. I wanted to actually take some time with it, so I thought I'd do it today instead. So sorry for missing a day, but hopefully as I do this bonus episode talking about yesterday, that will somewhat make up for it. So I found myself going to Rich Mix, which is a cinema near to Shoreditch High Street Station. We're talking East London here. It's like a four or five minute walk from the station doors open at six i got there about half five went by myself because you could only reserve one ticket and it was a very impromptu decision i went in asked about it they said oh yeah just go upstairs went upstairs it's like a there's a bar i'm by myself i've got time to kill i'm nervous i feel awkward so i i got a a medium coke looking around everyone else has got beers and Everyone else has an alcoholic beverage, and I look like I instantly look like a thirteen-year-old kid because I've got, you know how cinemas will put, you know, uh, pop drinks in that kind of plastic, like McDonald's or something. So everyone else has got glasses with beers and wines and so on, and I'm there with like a plastic cup of Coke. Thinking like, right, perfect, I'll blend right in. So I sit down for a bit, and then I see a bit of a crowd building around the entrance you all just walked through. So I head back to the entrance and realize they are forming a queue. And that at the head of that queue, you redeem your QR code for your ticket from Dice, which I'm a big fan of the Dice app. I'll talk more about it as we go on. But I, for something like that, to get that last minute text of, hey, you're on the list if you still want to go. That's a really fantastic thing. I've mentioned in the past the many, many free gigs I've been to thanks to Dice and people and so on that have happened because of it. So this was really cool. You get to the front of the queue you show your QR code and they're like, yep, you're on the list, fantastic. You get a wristband. You also get a free little thing of popcorn and a free drink. So the Coke was unnecessary. But now I'm holding my backpack, which I brought a copy of the Meet Me in the Bathroom book with me, just on the off chance that someone from the book would be there and maybe I could get my copy signed. Stay tuned to find out if that did happen. So I'm holding my backpack, my coat, this stupid 
uh, cup of Coke and the free popcorn, and just trying to juggle it all. Then after you, you get through the queue, you show your QR code, you pick those three things up, you head to the end of the bar, and then about 30 seconds later, they let, started to let us into the cinema. I'm going by myself. I'm behind two people, like whether it's the first ones that walked in. And as you walk into the cinema, there are three rows that have been marked as reserved. They've all got a sheet of paper that says reserved on them. There was also clearly a guest list when you went to, you know, redeem your QR code. There was one half of the desk was for people who had got a ticket through Dice and the other half of the desk was for people on the guest list. So there's a slight sense of, oh, I wonder who might be on the guest list. I wonder who you might see. I wonder if I'll get my book signed. We go into the cinema. I sit on the road just behind the reserved section next to these two people that were just ahead of me. It was like it was clearly the best place to sit, you know, centre of the screen, not too far forward, not too far back kind of thing. So I'm now sitting next to these two people and they want to save some seats for their friends. So they end up saving pretty much the rest of the road to our left. And then two other, another couple ends up sitting next. They ask if there's anyone else sitting next to me. I'm like, no, feel free. So I'm sandwiched between two people that have a bunch of friends coming on my left and another two people on my right. And we get in about six. Movie didn't start until seven. There was an after party with free pizza at 8.30. So from six to seven, it's just the awkward sitting around trying not to finish a popcorn before the film starts. And I... I'm kind of looking out to see, one, will this thing actually fill up? Because it got to about half six and there's still quite a lot of empty space. Two, I wonder who we'll see in the reserved area. And three, do I make small talk? Do I just sit quietly? Do I eavesdrop? Do I listen to music? I don't know. I've just sat here waiting for this film to start with nothing else to do. I eventually do make some, hopefully not too awkward, small talk. So there's two people that sat to my left with a whole bunch of friends it turns out all of them work for dice as luck would have it and i mentioned (laughs) not too subtly or unsubtly i don't know that i'm a big fan of the app it's the reason i'm here i think the icebreaker the people that would work from that with dice there was a guy sat next to me and a girl next to him and the guy said something about how the camera on his phone only works if he slaps his phone against his hand or against the surface. He has to, like, beat his phone up in order to get the camera to work. I couldn't help but overhear, and I was like, why are you slapping your phone against your thigh? And that made me chuckle. So that was a bit of an icebreaker there. And I kind of made broke ice with the, the couple to my right. I just asked the, the girl next to me, there's a girl and a boy, asked the girl, uh, are you also trying to not finish your popcorn before the film starts? And she said, she chuckled and said, yeah, and the guy next to her was like, he's he's doing a bit better. And then I think the first... Qu- there was some slight conversation happening across the five of us. I think the first question I posed to the row was, "Have does anyone here actually read Enemy Magazine? <laughs> and every, in a roundabout way, everyone pretty much said no. But they were all kind of like, oh, not really happening a bit. Like, yeah, me neither. Like, none of us do. It's okay. You don't have to be polite. But <laughs> I know we don't. But then I asked, has anyone read the book that this film is based on? And no one had, except for the guy two two steps to my right. He was halfway through the book. And I kind of asked... See, the ice was broken. Some conversation was made. Because it's a delicate line you're crossing between being annoying and trying to start... Like, we all know there's a looming event about to start. So you don't want to start a whole engrossing conversation which you'll then have to stop because the movie's about to start. 
But I started asking about how well the people I was sat with knew the bands. I kind of, I think I might just ask outright how old they were. I think one of them was born in 97. I said, the litmus test is, do you remember 9-11? And the two people to my right said, no, they were too young. <laughs> I jokingly said, well, you didn't miss much. I mean, it was kind of a big deal, <laughs> but you know. And we got talking about how they knew the bands. It, it got, I got the impression, I've made no secret on this podcast just how keen I am on this era and the bands from that time. I very much got the impression no one I was set with was as much of an enthusiast as I was. I also did, I thought I spotted amongst the reserve section. Someone walked across the reserve section and sat on the end of our row. I was almost certain it was Abby from the TV show Broad City. If you search Google for Broad City and which one's Abby, I was sure it was them. And I also at some noticed that sat right in front of me. I'm pretty sure it was the singer-songwriter will joseph cook so will if you ever listen to this hi so i was talking to the people to my right about how they knew the bands one of them said they're fans of the killers and i said probably not from the debut album though right and i said yeah well i, I kind of listened to it when i was a kid you know when i was eight or something and i said oh man this whole conversation is making me feel very old but it's okay i'm cool with it but the people to my right came to this event same as me. They were on the guest list, they're on the wait list, and then got told, oh, hey, you can come if you want. And so it's a bit of an impromptu thing, why not? And I think for at least the people I was sat with, they were learning, not learning, but they were getting this, the whole meet me in the bathroom experience primarily from the documentary we're about to watch and not like they've read the book or were engrossed in the scene at the time and are now kind of reminiscing. So the atmosphere in the room was, wasn't, was pretty cool. The, it, I think it maybe there was a handful of empty seats at the end, but the closer to seven o'clock, the room did fill up. Someone named, oh, I'm going to say Ben. Ben from NME came to the front and said, hi, everyone, thanks for coming. I think this might be something semi-regular that NME magazine tries to do, where they screen films for free and you can come along, essentially. I don't know if there's gonna, if there are that many more music-based films coming out, or maybe they'll just show classic films, like documentaries about previous artists and things like that. Maybe they'll do one for Shut Up and Play the Hits, Shut Up and Play the Hits, which is the documentary about LCD Sound System, or at least them breaking up when we thought they'd broken up. But yeah, Ben from, ben from Enemy came down and said, thanks everyone, enjoy the movie, and the movie started. Now, if you've read the book, you will likely prefer the book to the movie because the book dives in so much deeper into all the nooks and crannies and crevices of this era, of this story, of these bands. And that I was hedging my bets going into it because the reviews I'd seen or heard here and there alluded to that. But you have to take the documentary as its own thing. Reading, Listening to and reading interviews with the people that made it, Pulse Films, will... Dylan Southern, Will Lovelace. They also made Shut Up and Play the Hits and they made their Blur documentary No Distance Left to Run about. So Shut Up and Play the Hits is about LCD sound system breaking up. No Distance Left to Run is about the band Blur getting back together. They made this film. And in some of their interviews, they've mentioned how when they read the book, the first half of the book was the real page turner. That's the part where it's telling you about the formation of these bands. And that's the really exciting part where you see things 
you see how you see the seeds of what can be and you see it start to grow and then grow rapidly and go even more rapidly and it, you feel like you're a member of these bands and you're in the van with them and it's all so exciting and it's all happening a bit like the movie almost famous the way that movie kind of makes you feel like you're in the band and oh my goodness we're going we're playing bigger stages things are happening for us so that's what they focus on they didn't go all the way in depth with all of the bands they didn't go all the way in depth with the complete career trajectories up to the end of the book i think at one point there was a conversation about this being a series which would have been more of a talking head thing where they show archive footage and then they show one of these members of the band it's always someone in a studio or in front of a piano or in front of a bunch of guitars on the wall talking about the archive footage you've just seen and the era of that time reminiscing essentially but what they decided to do instead is just show archive footage and essentially either play this audio from that archive footage or play the tapes because the book itself is an oral history the whole book is just people talking about the time the author introduces it and then steps back and just lets you hear from all these people so the movie I think they just took some of the tapes from those interviews and used those. So that's you either hear hear people talking about it or you you're hearing the archive footage and it's all just archive footage. It doesn't cut to Julian Casablancas now in sunglasses talking about yeah, it was a crazy time or anything. It's just all about the time we're talking about. It starts with the Moldy Peaches who are part of the anti-folk scene. Adam Green, Kimya Dawson, they start playing like jokey, funny acoustic songs, but with some bites to them, interesting songs. They eventually cross paths with the Strokes. I think both uh, Paul Banks from Interpol and Karen O oh from Yeah Yeah Yeahs perform at some point in the anti-folk scene as well. So it starts with the Moldy Peaches, that segues into the Strokes, then you see Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and then you see Interpol as kind of outsiders. Interpol talk about how they saw the Strokes succeeding, and they're over here feeling like they're getting nowhere. And then later on in the movie, about 14 minutes or so in, James Murphy enters the scene, and DFA, and then the Rapture come as well. There's a little bit about TV on the radio, there's some montage footage, I think the Killers are included, I think the Walkmen are included, but we're mainly talking about The Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, LCD sound system. A little bit of The Rapture, a little bit of TV and the Radio, and a bit of The Moldy Peaches as well. If this whole era was a festival, and mark my words, I think the clock is ticking on this being a festival. There was a whole When We Were Young fest, which was basically... A lot of emo bands from the 2000s all gathered on one stage for two weekends, I think it was. There's got to be some talk about doing something similar with this group of bands. If you have a festival where The Strokes, Interpol and LCD Sound System headline the three days, or Yeah Yeah Yeahs are in there as well, or Vampire Weekend and MGMT, or even Justice. Like, it's the, the festival lineup writes itself, essentially. But such is the nature of these bands, I feel like it was already a Herculean effort to get them to be part of this book slash movie, never mind being part of an actual festival, like, dedicated to this era. The whole, the movie feels like a trip. 
you're flooded with images of the time that you just ride the wave of it. You're not so focused on the timeline and this happened and this happened and this person spoke to that person, but you're more just floating on the vibe and the atmosphere and the energy of the time. It's really cool seeing images of some of these band members from when they were really young. You see a child, Julian Casablancas. You see James Murphy with some questionable haircuts and facial hair. You see some... If you're like me and you're really keen on this area, you see a lot of live footage that you've already seen on YouTube, but it's still cool to see on a big screen. Oh, Ryan Adams makes an appearance, and he is as much a villain, if not more of a villain, in this documentary than he is in the book. Very much spoken about as the guy who introduced Albert Hammond Jr. to hard drugs. Yeah, it's it's a really nice vibe. The funniest parts, I think, were James Murphy's introduction to dance music. He's very much depicted as a stuffy, uptight, 90s indie rock kid who's just jaded about everything. Mostly about how he feels like he missed his chance to do what he always wanted to do and be the guy on stage and actually get somewhere with it. It may be give some more light to what happened between DFA Records, James Murphy and The Rapture. Because The Rapture were first signed to DFA, James Murphy and Tim Goldsworthy made that debut album by The Rapture, but they just took forever to release it, so eventually The Rapture left the label and signed to a major. And that was part of the impetus for James Murphy to start LCD Sound System. Even though he's introduced like halfway into the film, I think he might have the most sympathetic story, largely because of his age and the fact that he really looked like he'd missed the boat. And then the fact that he made his first song, that his first single, Losing My Edge, and was met with a response of, yeah, don't put this out. This is really embarrassing. No one should hear this. You sh- Just don't do it. But he did it anyway. Karen O, they really... They do a really good job of depicting the split that she has between the very shy person she is face-to-face and the larger-than-life character she becomes on stage and trying to reckon with the two and how much it takes out of her and then eventually finding balance. With The Strokes, it's a little bit poor little rich kids, but you do get some idea of where Julian is coming from, particularly the fact that his dad is of that uh, oligarchy, just very the world of the very rich and influential. And you see how that rubs Julian the wrong way. There's a clip where he's interviewed by Nardwa. And Nardwa leans into the fact that they met at a Swiss boarding school and Julian's dad is the head of a modelling company. And I think it's meant to be presented as a bit of a gotcha of the strokes. Like, oh, you you all come from such privilege or whatever. But honestly, Nardwa is the one who comes off looking kind of... It doesn't look great for him. He's correct in the points he's making, but the way he leans into it bristles uncomfortably TV on the radio are there for I think all of about two minutes unfortunately it it's understandable because they they only cover so much you mostly see TV on the radio in the aftermath of 9-11 and people just deciding you know what life is just way shorter than you think it is let me go ahead and do the thing I've been wanting to do and also in the the necessary exodus from their neighbourhoods as rent prices start to go up and the beginning of the end is looming, essentially. Interpol 
it's you, your first glimpse of Interpol is Paul Banks playing an acoustic guitar at an open mic night, which made me laugh because it's his voice. He's it's already Interpol, even though it's just him, and he likely hasn't met any any of the other members yet, and he's much younger. Never mind Interpol, the band sing, seeming as outsiders. Paul Banks, the person, very much feels that way in this movie as well. To say nothing of Carlos D, I'm very happy with how much Carlos D was in this because something that I think I've been thinking about with Interpol is that there's been a vacuum in that band since Carlos left. It's understandable he left. They're still great without him. But he was like the only person on the stage when they performed who could strut. Paul Banks was the lead singer, but Carlos, I think, is like the front man. Because Paul Banks is very much behind the guitar and singing and performing. But Carlos would just kind of move around the stage. And also you see some clips of them recording. That guy is so good at bass, the way he plays it. With his drop D lower string to make it easier to play octaves and so on. But man, he just dances around the bass the entire time he's playing. I actually learned quite a bit of an Interpol bass lines because I was going to play them on TikTok Live. Which I might get back to in the very, very, very near future. But yeah, it gives you a newfound appreciation for just how good Carlos was. With each band... I cannot praise enough Lizzie Goodman's effort for making this book happen. The bands are great, the songs are great, the shows are great, but that each individual story is amazing. But for someone to recognise there's way too many stories here to just let them only exist as hearsay, this needs to be captured. Because in the book, you see more of each band's trajectory further into their careers. You see more bands. You also see about music journalism and bloggers and people taking pictures at gigs and things like the cobra snake and the parties that were being thrown and the technology that was changing it delves much more deeply into that it touches on it in the film interpol talk about how all the strokes they both talk about how their second album should have been the ones that sold in the millions but they didn't because that's when people started downloading so the strokes did not sell as big as they had been telegraphed to sell because people started downloading and interpol i think were on tour in europe their second album hadn't come out yet, but they were bumping into people who knew the lyrics to songs from their second album already because of downloading. The movie also doesn't go into when things really move into Brooklyn and you get the rise of things like Vampire Weekend and MGMT and Grizzly Bear, etc. But again, it's only 90 minutes. I don't know if they'd even if it would be worth doing a sequel where you touch on those things. So that was the movie. A very, very satisfying watch. I'm really glad I went to see it. Afterwards, there was a bit of a question mark because there was an after party, but I was a bit like, do I even want to go? I still don't know anyone here, really. And when you're at a place by yourself, you have to actively engage the socialising muscles and be like, okay, let me go and talk to that person. And the whole time my mind is racing, like, what do we talk about and how do I keep the conversation going? It's almost like a DJ when you're listening to one song and you're trying to cue up the next song and once you get that cue, you're onto the next song and so on. So as a DJ, you never really just stop and enjoy the song you're playing. You're busy kind of building the architecture of the night as you go. That's what goes on in my head when it comes to, at least in this situation, not always, but in this situation. I went upstairs to the after-party area took a free beer. This time I I was aware that there would be a free drink, so I took a free drink instead of buying another medium Coke. Went into the dance floor area, but there was at least maybe three groups of people 
that I kind of saw in the reserved area that looked like they could be the next strokes in looks alone. That there were a bunch of tall, skinny white dudes who wore some kind of leather or just looked like they were a gang, possibly in a band. Like that that type of vibe to them. But there was, at least for me anyway, no hints of like, oh, who's that? Oh, I wonder if they're going to or anything like that. The first song I think they played while we were waiting for the show to start was Losing My Edge. I think that's the same song they started the after party with. It was not shy about playing the hits from their era. Last Night, Date With A Night, Obstacle One, you know, the classics, Slow Hands, all the good stuff. There was also free pizza. I did not get any of the pizza. There was a bit of a mad-ish dash for the pizza and I was like, ah, I'm good. I did approach the person that I thought was Abby from Broad City. It was not Abby from Broad City. The only conversation, and I apologise profusely, and they said, no, it's not the first time someone said that to me. The only person I really did talk to is a guy who actually works with Universal. I was like, so, did you know these bands? They're like, no. I'm like, oh, so what, I'm, I'm like, what brought you to this event? Then they said, oh, I work with Universal, who are the company distributing this film. We had a brief chat about what that's like, how he's seen films by Universal, like, many, many times because of work. And he actually recommended that I check out the film Tar, which stars Kate Blanchett, which I've heard of, haven't seen, but he was really enthusiastic about it. So who knows, maybe I will see it. But that was all of my social energy spent for the day. So I, I kind of ducked out at that point. And like I said, I was a bit too tired to hit record once I got back. So I thought I'd do it today. I mentioned previously that I'm, I've, I am watching the TV show or the Amazon show, Daisy Jones and the Six. Daisy Jones and the Six is based on a book, and the book is a fictional oral history. I haven't read it, but if it's anything like Meet Me in the Bathroom, that means the whole book is just fictional interviews with people in the here and now talking about what happened back in the 70s. I think as far as the TV show depicts it, maybe the book is the same. It's the members of the band in the 90s talking about what happened in the 70s, and Hanging over everything is the knowledge that I think in 1977 they play their last show together and that's it. And now they're all being interviewed in 1997 talking about what happened leading up to 1977. Now this is a series. I think it's going to be 10 episodes. I thought they released three episodes last Friday and I thought they'd do one episode every Friday afterwards to stretch it out. But they've actually dropped another three episodes today. I've seen one. And a half. And oh man, I, I am really lapping up this, this show. It, the chokehold it has on me is only getting stronger. And it feels a little bit like a glimpse of what Meet Me in the Bathroom could have been if it was a series. Because with Meet Me in the Bathroom, you have people talking about what happened and archive footage with Daisy Jones and the Six, you have people talking about what happened. So they'll talk about how we decided to write together at this hotel. And then it will cut to a scene of those two characters in the hotel writing together. That's just hypothetical. I don't think that's actually happened, but that's that's what it's like. Whereas with Meet Me in the Bathroom, you'll just hear people talking about how the whole era felt and what the, the broad strokes of the course of their early career. We went for a tour in the UK, no one came to the shows. We came back and played the festival and I almost broke my neck. That that type of thing. Had Meet Me in the Bathroom been a series, the story of Daisy Jones and the Six is really good. There's about 
12 of those types of stories in Meet Me in the Bathroom, if not way more. So even if it was a series, I think you would struggle to find a limit on how deep you go. Would you do an episode for each band? Would you try and do all of the bands at the same time and just chart their course across each episode? I can imagine those types of conversations are what led to, you know what, let's just do a 90-minute film of this specific era, era, part of the era, with these specific bands. Add some focus to it, gives you something to hone in on instead of just spreading out and spreading out and going for them. It'll be 10 episodes, okay, 15, 20, two series type of thing. But what you see in Meeting in the Bathroom is similar to what you hear on the albums. It really is lightning in a bottle. I don't think it could have happened any other place at any other time. To say nothing of the 9-11 element of it, the footage they have of that, I remember, (laughs) I mentioned earlier when I was talking to the people sat near me, the litmus test of age is, do you remember 9-11? I remember getting on the bus home from school, I think, when the actual incident was happening and I got home we turned on the music channels I think MTV as we typically do after school day you know just watch music TV and so on and underneath all the music channels there was like a scrolling text that just said change to any news channel now and yes we did and then you saw the footage of what was going on in America crazy time and it really hits hard in the movie you see Paul Banks walking through debris and I'm like why what was the sin? I guess it was. I think it's easy to forget what the reality or neglect what the reality must have been of living in the city after what you saw on the actual day. Because it's not as if, you know, the towers came down on 11th of September and then 12th of September. It's not like it was Grand Theft Auto where you can do some real destruction in the city of whichever Grand Theft Auto video game you're playing. But then should you, the character, die and come back, or even if you get arrested, or even if you just get rid of all the start, the wanted stars you get, within like two minutes, whatever destruction, all the cars you crashed or things you blew up, are miraculously erased and the city looks like nothing happened. New York was just living with under a cloud of ash. I think at one point you hear a song by Kenya Dawson from the Moldy Peaches talking about how the air is full of filing cabinets and computers, and desks, and carpet. You, I don't think I've seen much footage of people walking around New York after 9-11. Like, the days, the weeks, even the months afterwards, there's just that constant reminder hanging over everything, which must have played a part into people's psyches and deciding to actually go for it with whatever creative endeavours they were pursuing. The way the members of each band kind of aligned, the fact that Albert met Julian when they were like eight years old and then Albert went back to LA, went to New York kind of on a whim. Not on a whim, he went to study film and just find himself essentially and then was like, oh yeah, doesn't... they? I think the story in the book, because I was reading the book on the way to the screening, just, just why not? And I started from the chapter about how the strokes know each other. Albert went to New York for a film school thing. He went with his mum as they're unpacking his stuff. They look, she looks out the window and sees the name Casablancas on the side of a building and says, Wasn't, isn't that boy that you met in Swiss boarding school, doesn't his surname, isn't his last name Casablancas? And lo and behold, that's how he reunites with Julian, who's already starting something up with his friends. And that just works. 
James Murphy meeting Tim Goldsworthy and David Holmes and then being introduced to dance music and then the rapture finding them. It all just clicks. Uh, Karen O meeting Nick Zinner and telling her friend, who happens to be the booking agent for the White Stripes. It, there are, I do appreciate the reminders of the circles that these folks are in because these weren't just absolute nobodies on the street that did this stuff. They came from certain backgrounds and certain means that enabled this stuff to happen, which is also a reality of the story. It's not, maybe not as heavy on the Nepo baby vibe, but there is an element of it involved because Karen O meets Nick Zinner, they start playing like acoustic songs together. Then she says, no, we should turn it into a rock band. She tells her friend who's the booking agent for the White Stripes that her band is really good. The friend calls her bluff and says, okay, you can open for the White Stripes. And so Karen says, we should get my other friend from the music college I went to, which is a very expensive music college. He plays drums and they become the AAS just in time to play before the White Stripes. That doesn't happen to just anyone. James Murphy, I think the story is that both of his parents passed away. He got a bit of inheritance and that played a part in him doing eventually what he did. Albert Hammond Jr., his dad is Albert Hammond, who wrote some pretty big songs, I think, in the 70s, 80s. And when Albert Hammond Jr. said he wants to do this thing, his dad essentially gave him a credit card that he footed, paid the bill for so that all the strings, cables, equipment they needed was paid for by Albert Hammond Sr., because apparently Albert Hammond Sr.'s dad did the same for him so that he could pursue music. That's a reality of the story, but it doesn't distract from the magic of the, the kismet, the, 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 the fate that led to all of these people crossing paths and all of this happening the way that it did. I also appreciate that England, the UK, is acknowledged in the fact that they acted as an accelerator for most of these bands. They got some buzz. You get a bit. You get a better impression of the buzz they had in New York before they came to the UK. Because before that, I was only really aware of the, each of these bands got things started in New York, but they came to the UK and played sold out tours, which were crazy big, and then went back to America and were met with, "Oh wow, okay, you are a big deal." I think it's in the book where someone mentions that Julian worked for his dad briefly, but didn't really work out. But he did manage to tell the models at that agency when his band is playing and the models would come to the shows which played a part in garnering some attention but it seems that with them it was more about how they would always move around as the five of them and always be working whatever room they're in to let people know hey we're playing a show it's a very intoxicating movie i really enjoyed it did i press record on my phone and record the audio of the entire film and then listen back to that as i was heading home I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Would potentially, hypothetically, allegedly mean piracy-wise. I didn't record. I didn't record anything. I didn't. I would not have recorded video because I know straight away that's that's not cool. But hypothetically, just listening back to it like it's a mixtape, such as the the alchemy of the movie and the stories. They did a good job. the The book. It feels weird to say the book is better. The book is just different. It covers different ground. But the movie does a very good job of what it's trying to do. And maybe I got a slight taste of that magical uh, kismet, fate, alignment, whatever, in being able to see this thing for free the way that I did. Because I could have easily said, 
I could have easily have not joined the waiting list thinking, oh, it's sold out, there's no point. I could have missed the text message saying you can get on. Because when they send you a text saying, hey, you're on the waiting list, now you can actually get a ticket. You have one hour to get that ticket. If you don't, they move on to the next person on the waiting list and then you go back to the... If you then respond after that hour, you're next in line if someone else drops out. Oh, I almost forgot. There was like a goodie bag on each seat in the cinema and I haven't even looked at what's in mine. So let's let's do that together. What did I get from NME magazine to celebrate this film? First you get a tote bag that says, that's black and it says enemy screens. This should be more of a YouTube video, but oh well. There is a can of water. Cano water, natural spring water in a can. I don't think I've ever had canned water before. I know that's more of a thing at music festivals, though. There is a QR code to sign up and be the first to hear about the next enemy screens, which I will be doing, because that was pretty cool. There are some stickers for enemy, one black, one red. I feel like, you know, have you ever watched a movie when someone goes to prison and as they're being put into the system, they have to empty their pockets and someone reads out all the things, like one wallet, brown, one set of keys, one handkerchief. That's what I feel like I'm doing right now. Oh! There is a keyring slash bottle open that says enemy on it. I will definitely be using that. And I think that's everything. <laughs> Not too bad. I'll take that. Don't know what I'm going to do with these stickers, though. I don't really have anywhere to put them. But oh well. Uh, yeah, why not have the can of water now? It's not even... Is it fizzy water in a can? No. It's just still water. In a can. I feel like a cave. I feel like a very old man right now. A caveman who just discovered a uh, touchscreen phone or something. Hmm. It's not bad. So that was Meet Me in the Bathroom. In cinemas now. Uh, I did kind of kick myself for not talking to more... Or not trying to talk to more people at the after party. The two sets of people that I spoke to before the film started. The people from DICE and the couple that just came to watch the film. They, I saw them at the after party, but I didn't go and say hi. I kind of just ducked out of there. Also, the guy Ben from Enemy, I'm guessing he's the editor. I don't know. But that would be a fantastic... I'm kind of kicking myself for not having a conversation there. But I'm also thinking all in good time. Another thought that crossed my mind watching the film is that it was such a lightning in a bottle at moment. I had a bit of a chat. The people that were on my right, we talked about how it's unlikely this kind of thing will happen again. And I said, well, I think less of it being at a geographical place, like, say, Manchester or Edinburgh, more that would happen online. So maybe TikTok is the new New York, so to speak. I also asked the people at DICE if DICE, the app, is running in other places. They said it's in New York and LA, but mostly in London. I think London's where it started. Hopefully it goes to more places because it's such a convenient app and great idea. I also thought about how there is an ebb and flow with New York because just before this whole boom happened with the strokes and everything in the early 2000s, in the 90s, wasn't really much happening for New York rock. I think similar in the 80s, but in the 70s, you had the punk rock scene. You had New York Dolls, Velvet Underground was 60s, New York Dolls was 70s, Ramones were 70s as well, Talking Heads, Blondie, etc. CBGBs. And it makes me think of how New York itself, because the, the main cities people talk about in America are New York and L.A. New York East Coast, L.A. West Coast. New York has seasons. It has winters with snow. It has summers with heat. L.A. is just 
generally speaking, really nice weather all the time, unless there's an earthquake or a fire, a forest fire or something, like something, a horrible natural disaster. Otherwise, it's just pleasantly warm all the time, to the point where there's sometimes droughts and uh, water shortages and things like that. In the... Daisy Jones and the Six is set in LA and it makes you want to go to LA. It makes you want to specifically go to LA in the 70s and be part of that scene. Because I think in the 60s, the singer-songwriter thing really took off Laurel Canyon, which is in LA, or in California anyway, and everything, everything kind of headed west. But I don't think things ever really left the west in that regard. Unlike New York, which has its ebbs and flows, it has its times when it's the centre of the universe and then things are quiet and then centre of the universe again and then quiet, much like how New York itself has seasons of summer and winter and LA just is constantly warm. I'm going to do... I still have yet to really make a new video for YouTube and I want to do the one where I talk about how... jokingly talk about how Brendan Flowers... Brandon Flowers from The Killers ruined the indie rock party of the 2000s. The truth is it just is that it migrated from downtown Manhattan to Brooklyn and then it went west, as in L.A. Even things like taking pictures at parties and things like that and Instagram and all of that stuff and Coachella, it all flocked to the... Where's that going with this anyway? Yeah, so it's not just Brown and from the killers that ended the indie rock party. It also, there's the financial crisis... There are, there's the, the genre, I think it became very economically just painful to actually have a band. So things got a lot more electronic. I'm thinking of Justice that led to Skrillex, that led to EDM. And of course, Daft Punk played Coachella that one time and had the pyramid set up for their Alive tour. That was a very inspirational moment. Yeah, I can't remember where I was going with this. <laughs> I've been talking for 40 minutes, so forgive me. But that's why I didn't make an episode yesterday. It's because all of that happened. And it was a good time. I recommend checking out the film. I can't recommend enough reading the book because I am just fascinated with that era. And I think I might start my, what, like fifth reread at this point? Just reading that one chapter on the way to the screening. I was like, oh man, I forgot how fun this book is. So I might be reading that again. I'm going to make another episode today uh, just to try and catch up a bit. So that was this kind of counts as yesterday's episode. I'll do another one about today and we'll hopefully get back on track. Otherwise, thanks for listening. You know where to find me, link in the bio, etc. Blah, 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 blah. Thanks again, Dice and Enemy, if ever you folks should happen to hear this. And I'll catch you on the next one. Take care.